Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition, a delicious range of sumptuously smooth dark chocolate. You're listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. I'm coming to you from under a duvet in my bedroom because I'm trying to make my house sound as much like a studio as possible. These are very strange and surreal days and I know that you are all experiencing it as well. And we really are all in this together. So we're going to keep bringing you podcasts and we're going to hopefully help with some of the situations you find yourself in. We really want to hear from you and we want to hear about how you're getting on and um, the different ways that it's affecting your life and also maybe some of the more hopeful thoughts that you can share with other listeners. It has been quite an overwhelming few days. Um, The schools closed, the bans on large gatherings um, and finally the pubs closing too. Um, And here at the Women's Podcast, we've been trying to think of ways to create a bit of lightness amongst all the gloom and a way to bring you all together. So we are looking for your pandemic poems, pandemic poetry. Uh, We want you to tell us what your experiences have been so far, um, whether it's panic buying or the madness in the shops or just the cabin fever of being stuck at home. And I know I'm very conscious that people are in difficult relationships. It's a really trying time. I know we're all worried about our older relatives. Um, Or maybe you can write us a poem or even just a bit of prose uh, about the nice walk you took with the kids, wherever that was. Maintaining a good social distance, of course. Anyway, we'd love to hear from you. And I think we all need a bit of solidarity and community and maybe some lightness in all of the darkness as well. I think we will prevail and I really like that Leo Varadkar said that in his speech. But I did think as well, uh, and I might keep coming to her, I'm going to bring you a conversation I had earlier with my mother who lives with my sister and her husband and their three kids in Fibsborough. And I just think I'll keep coming to her for a sort of a little corona diary every now and again. Um, so I gave her a ring and I just was asking her how she was getting on with these very different and challenging times. Here she is, Anne Ingle. Well, mum, I'm in my bedroom under a duvet trying to make the sound as studio-like as uh, possible. And this is just one tiny way in which my life has changed. So I just thought it would be interesting to give you a call and see um, how someone in the older age bracket, you're over 80, so someone in the higher risk category to find out how you're feeling about these very strange days we're living in. I'm feeling like I suppose everybody else, a bit anxious, but 
I'm coping with it by making a very specific routine out for myself, down to hours and minutes, because I think that's the only way I'm going to get through it. It's just by, I have like 11.15, read the papers, do the crosswords, have a look at the Twitter, you know, uh, 9.50, go for a walk for half an hour along the canal, which I don't meet anybody except the occasional swan. Um, you know, have regular meals and get dressed properly and I've even put my earrings on today. <laughs> you know, I, I want to make life as normal as possible, but it is a whole feeling of sadness over you all the time, but at the same time, to focus on other things, I think it's very important. I'm feeling very, very lucky because I can work from home. I'm not self-employed or having to worry about a business or laying off staff and all the other things economically that people are having to deal with. And I'm sort of feeling that it's a real time for counting your blessings, as well as all the anxiety that we're experiencing. But how do you feel? Because you live with my sister, Katie, and you have a family there. So you're not on your own. Are you comparing yourself to other older people who have it a bit worse? Yes, Roshan. I am so blessed because I have Katie here and Killian's here and Katie's playing schools with the children and I have the three young children who are giving me constant hugs and loves because we're just a little unit. We're isolating ourselves more or less, but we're a unit of isolation, which is absolutely wonderful for me. So I'm so lucky, but I am constantly ringing my older friends who aren't in that same position because I think contact is very important so I'm trying to ring somebody every day to uh, make sure they're okay and you know keep them going and have a bit of a laugh and stuff and what did you think of that on the telly last night you know like last tango from Halifax was the last episode last night unless you're lucky enough to be able to stream from the BBC and that was a great great episode and that kind of thing just to chat about normal everyday things and make life as normal as possible. And what's your overriding feeling about how long this is going to last or can you even think like that are you taking it very much one day at a time i'm being realistic about this this i don't think i'm going to be out to go out to the pictures for example until maybe middle of june the end of june I, I, that's my frame in my head and i think it, it's better to be realistic about it rather than say oh the 29th of march 29th of march no nothing's going to happen different on the 29th of march things are going to get worse and until they get start to get better, then we're stuck where we are and, you know, be realistic about it, but also don't panic. <laughs> That's the main thing. But it's very important everybody thinks about the other person. I mean, you know, to go out into crowded places is completely a no-no if you want to care about the rest of humanity. It's not just the individual, it's for all of us that we have to do this. Now, it is the women's podcast, and I know this might sound a bit trivial, but I think <laughs> we're kind of all dealing with these very extreme and also very trivial things at the moment. You mentioned on Twitter that you are growing a kind of corona beard. You've got the hairs on your chin and you can't get rid of them because obviously you can't get out. They are thriving. They're thriving on my little chin. And I haven't uh, really got to uh, any conclusion about it yet, uh, whether I'm going to just let them away because they are kind of white so it's not too bad and mm. there's nobody i'm not interacting with the general public so <laughs> not interacting with anybody so i suppose we'll just wait and see what happens so you usually get them ripped off every fortnight no it's it's wax it's a little simple it takes two seconds over in the nail garden in Finsbury here i go over there and uh, for 10 euro 
every four weeks I get this trip, 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 and they're gone. You know. Okay. Um, so. Well, listen. I might call on you again as we go on with these podcasts, and just to keep a little Corona diary for me, and we can check in on you because I think as an older person, we're all feeling that the reason that we're all doing these things is to protect people like you and people with underlying conditions and the really vulnerable in our society. So it'll be interesting to hear from you on a regular basis and how you're getting on as these very weird days progress. And and, and, and for all anybody who is listening and who is doing that, thank you. Yeah, well, you said it. We're all in this together. And um, I'll talk to you soon, Mum. I miss you. Mind yourself. Bye. The Irish Times Women's Podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition. Sumptuously smooth, dark chocolate. And up next, um, something non-corona related. The day before we all started working remotely, Patricia Scanlon had come into the studio to talk to Cathy Sheridan about her new book, The Liberation of Bridget Dunn. And It tells the story of four feisty women who come together at a family reunion uh, when a lifetime of secrets is revealed. Patricia Scanlon has been writing books for nearly 30 years and she's also the creator of The Open Door Project, which provides novels for adults struggling with reading and writing. She spoke to Cathy about writing her very first book, her experience with endometriosis, and why writing The Open Door Project has been her biggest challenge so far as an author. Patricia, thanks so much for coming in. It's a pleasure. In this, to get out of the house. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is so interesting when everybody else is thinking about having to stay in the house and wondering how they're going to survive all this. But let's talk about the reason you're here and the reason you've got out of the house and come into the city on a day which, where the city actually seems, feels half empty. Well, it was my great delight to be out and about on a book tour. Uh, for my latest novel, um, The Liberation of Bridget Dunn. And actually, it's 30 years this year since City Girl came out. So it's kind of... Well, it's hard to believe, actually, Cathy, that I'm here 30 years, that people are still buying the books and enjoying them. And uh, so, yeah, I've been on the book tour. I've been um, signing in the bookshops and doing interviews and... uh, how are you managing that, Patricia? Because I know you had to, that the launch had to be cancelled. Well, we cancelled the launch because I didn't want um, family and friends who were coming who would be uh, immune compromised. I didn't want to put them in any kind of uh, situation where they felt they wanted to come and support me, but they couldn't. And it just seemed a sensible thing to do. And so we cancelled the launch. But um, we're going to have a hoolie uh, for the City Girl. Um, uh, there's a special edition of City Girl coming out in June. So shall we have a summer hoolie? So the 30 year City Girl. Yeah. yeah. Which actually really hasn't dated, has yeah. it? Not really. Just a few things we did upgrade. But I mean... What, it, did, you, what did you upgrade? Um, I think it was about half a page of little things. Isn't that amazing? But like, I mean, we didn't upgrade them to have it, the Devlin, Caroline and Maggie having cell phones or mobile phones. Um, and they all had their filofaxes. Yes. That was the day of the filofax. Gosh, it was. Um, but actually, in, in the liberation of Bridget Dunn, it's interesting because um, I go from the 50s and right up to 
the current time. And it's like there's a tapestry of um, the Irish women's liberation movement and um, the women's fight for equality, um, the women's fight against the suppression of church and state woven into the tapestry of it. Because when I was researching it, uh, and that I, I mean, I remembered so much myself, like I remembered my mother telling me that she had to be churched after having her babies. Uh, I remember having to wear a, a, a mantilla to, to, to mass, um, you know, and I didn't understand the significance of it. So I quite no. liked my mantilla. Well, they, were, they were actually very pretty. Yeah, they were. Yes. Jackie, Jackie Kendi always That's wore her. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. 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 Uh, and so um, I wanted my nieces in particular and that generation of women to understand that the freedoms um, they have uh, were hard fought for. Uh, and is that why you set out to write? It has a big sprawling novel. Yes. It's 500 and, uh, 512 pages. I didn't actually set out in my head saying yes. I'm going to write this novel about, um, you know, how women have had to to fight for their corner uh, mm. since since the 40s and 50s. I, I was down at the prayer over the graves for my parents um, uh, in Rossler Harbour and we went down to St Helens where we used to swim when we were children and there's a beautiful house down there on top of a cliff and it's called the Four Winds and it was the nuns holiday home and I was thinking about those nuns and I thought to myself all of the nuns that have gone through those doors did they all have a vocation did they want to be there were they there because their parents wanted a nun or a priest, you know, the way they had a nun or a priest in the family? Um, did they go as a nun with a dowry? And so they were up in the higher echelons and not the domestic. And, and it was interesting to go back. And I interviewed a 90 year old nun and it was fascinating. And she said to me, please tell my story. Um, she had lost her faith in the church. Um, she had been in the Suez crisis and... Um, uh, she was the youngest nun in the convent and um, the military came and hammered on the door and uh, she said, you can't come in. Um, this is a house of women, hoping that that would put them off. Uh, but no, they came in and they wanted the French nuns um, and they they wanted the passports because it was French, Egyptian and Irish nuns in, in the convent. And um, they said that they didn't know where their passports were and they put the gun to the Reverend Mother's head and said, get the passports. And they knew what was going. The French nuns were taken and raped and murdered. And the two Irish nuns made their way back home and they were chastised by the church when they got home for leaving their post. And she said that's when she lost faith in the Catholic Church. And that's, uh, she said she was too cowardly to leave because she was kind of institutionalised a bit, you know, and where was she going to go? What was she going to do? But she said she tried her best to subvert them from the inside. She was a great nun. She was so interesting. Has she um, died? No, she's still... She's. I've, I saw her there about uh, two weeks ago. Um, I know, maybe three weeks ago. And uh, she was. it was great to see her. Oh, and what she said was... Yes, yeah, so then she started, you know, working things out for herself, reasoning for herself, because she was so shocked with what was going on in the church and um, you know she said she so she started reading metaphysical books um, um, and just studying yeah. and whatever resonated with her she went with it and she said she's so glad she lived long enough to find her own truth and this is what happens with Bridget I think this is really important Patricia because yeah. a lot of people would be put off 
by the notion that a nun is this is, is actually yes. the Bridget of the title. Yes. Um and so so I think this is very important to put this in context. I've always felt that nuns were very underappreciated. Absolutely. There were some bats from hell in the yes. school I went to, but on yes. the other hand, there were some absolute oh, heroines. Wonderful women. And you see them now living in quietly in in, yeah. in houses all over yes. the place. But and look doing what they're doing, like yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look at our own sister Stan, Sister Concilio. You know, but I mean the nuns out in the missions, they did Trojan work, mm-hmm. you know, for the health of the women. Um, and so it's not, I, d- I wanted Bridget Dunn to be balanced as well, but yes. I wanted to show what so women d- so endured. D- just give us a sense of the sprawl of the book so and, and how this comes about, how they all s- begin to congregate around. Well, around, uh, Bridget, Bridget and Imelda um, were two sisters and they lived on a farm in a small townland called Art Clock uh, in the West. I live in Art Clock. Oh, I made that name up myself. You didn't. I did. <laughs> Where's Art Clock? Art Clock's in Kildare. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> well, it's real it's very small. ARDs. I'd hope not to see myself. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> you might. I hope I'm not Imelda. <laughs> oh, but Imelda is amazing, though. Imelda was the quiet um, um, feminist uh, because she was... I'd, anyway, I'd, and the two sisters didn't get on. And then something happened with Bridget and she just had to get out of our clock. And the nuns came to give a um, retreat and she thought, this is my escape. I'm going to join the nuns. And Bridget, or Imelda knew she didn't have a vocation and she called her out on it. But anyway, Bridget did escape and Imelda was very bitter um, because she was left to look after the parents when they got older, uh, to help out in the farm. Which is very much a theme of country life even now. Yeah, all Bridge, all Imelda wanted to do was to go to Dublin and be be independent and you know go to the cin- a proper cinema, not uh, a cow shed where the rain battered down on the roof, and you couldn't hear if it was lashing rain. You couldn't hear the actors. Um, she wanted to go to Dublin and anything she wanted, she couldn't. It never happened because her sense of duty kept her at home as well. She married somebody to escape from home. She didn't love him. Um, she was not in love with him, but she was very fond of him. But um, her life was a drudge and then her best friend came up to Dublin and she used to go up and visit her. And uh, if his best friend was telling her about the women's liberation movement and about the, uh, she went up on the train to Belfast because I wanted to get that in. So the girl, my niece's generation would see there was a time that the church interfered so badly in yeah. marriages. It seems like a joke now, but yeah. it really wasn't yeah. then. Yeah, so yes. I wrote all about that. And then the younger generation in the book, Keelan and uh, Mary Claire. Mary Claire is, uh, came home from Canada to be at Bridget's party um, and the dirt had been done on her yes. by her partner. Yeah. And she's heartbroken. And it's the wisdom of Bridget as well. And, yes. and Imelda, you know, I mean, you don't realise how wise these women are, how wise your mothers and grandparents are uh, until later in your life. I'm afraid so. Yeah. Yes. And I keep telling my children that. Yes. And you then just don't know how wise I am, but you will. <laughs> Bridget then begins to understand the repeal movement and why uh, it's so important for, to, for women to have their choice. So it's, it's Bridget's understanding is opened as she's retiring. Yeah. And she after the party, anyway, there's a party and Imelda lets fly and reveals a whole load of secrets and all her bitterness comes out. And um, that is when Bridget takes off the veil. She knows she's no longer a nun, um, but it's very liberating. Yes. And in the end, they do. There's a great reconciliation 
and and the awful sad thing is they both realised they envied what each other had. Um, Imelda um, uh, envied Bridget her freedom to be in Africa and, you know, she'd been the convent in, in France and the life she was living with no kind of minding relatives and all of that. And Bridget envied her, her husband and her home and her children and being able to have a sex life and, um, you know, that kind of thing. And and they realised they could have been friends all along. Patricia, as you you speak, I'm kind of fascinated by your relationship with the the Catholic Church and with religion and with God. I mean, I was reading your acknowledgements, for example, if if I may. Yes. Uh, And your first one is in, in what, three pages of acknowledgements. You say, as always, my first acknowledgement is to my spiritual team led by Jesus, Mary, St. Joseph, the divine feminine energy of Mary Magdalene, Saints Michael and Anthony, the stalwarts, and all my angel saints and guides. My books would never be written without your divine inspiration. And yet you've written this book, which kind of kicks against <laughs> various yeah, but conventions and traditions. That's not religion. Yes. So, you know, there's a difference between religion and, you know, that beautiful spiritual energy, uh, the esoteric energy that is part of our lives if we open to it. And like that, I was reared a Catholic, you know, by Catholic parents. And I couldn't understand. You have to think for yourself. You have to work it out. I couldn't understand. Well, if we're all equal, why isn't there women priests? Um, you know, why are, are women told what they have to do? Why are they the second class? You know, when in the station in the old days, um, and still I think in parts of the country they have the masses said in the house, and all the neighbours come to help you. You, you paint it it's from top to bottom. More of a feature yeah. now, actually, which we'll look at. Yes, and um, it's very communal. Mm. But the priest was said first, then the men, then the women. And it was this awful hierarchy. And so for somebody who was born in the image and likeness of God, I couldn't understand this. And so as I got older and I got more angry and I couldn't understand, I just couldn't understand. So I had to think for myself and I had to start. I read books. I was brought to my knees on many an occasion with my own issues, like with endometriosis. Why is this happening to me? What what have I done that's so wrong to have this? Um, And so it's just life's kind of experiences. And I think for anybody, if you read something or hear something that resonates with you, that's when it's important. A lot of people wouldn't resonate with what's in my book, um, but there might be one little thing that'll resonate with them. And that's when a penny drops, like with Bridget. And she goes, oh, I never thought of it like that. Yeah, all along the way, dotted throughout, there are things mm. that I know will make somebody sit up and yes, say, say oh, I didn't know that. Yes, I didn't It's the best of kind of novel, actually, when something is rooted in fact. Yeah. Because you feel you're learning something as well, well as, I didn't as, want it to be like, being I just, entertained. It's just the tapestry of life. Yes. It's just... You know, you set your sense of time and place when you're writing a novel and you want it to be as authentic as possible mm-hmm. and you want your readers to be in that place. Um, Patricia, tell us a bit about how you do it. I mean, 30 years since City Girl um, and boy, when you began, it wasn't like you were handed it on a plate. No, there, was no, there was no lucky moment where somebody no. said, oh, come into our yes, parlour, Patricia. Yes, my first advance was 150 Yes, uh, tell us a little pounds. bit about that, just for people who are listening. Um, what you, you were working as a librarian. I, in, I was in Dublin City Libraries, yeah, and I had endometriosis, which is a really painful condition. Very, very sickening. Um, but really, you didn't know it at the time? No, it took me 10 years to be diagnosed. I was told it was all in the head. I was told I had irritable bowel. I was told the male gynaecologists, um, God bless them. Um, I, 
was told to go and have a baby. Endometriosis is oh, one of the worst yeah. causes of uh, infertility. Um, one guy said I had a low threshold of pain. So I put him in a, a short story, I can tell you. Uh, and I called it a low threshold of pain. I sent him off to get his chest waxed. <laughs> <laughs> that was magnificent. Yeah. Did you and send him a copy of the book? I, oh, that was this is years later. Hmm. I can't even remember who. I just remember. I, I, I just remember thinking to myself, God, if you ever had the pain yeah. I had, there would be an instant cure for endometriosis. Patricia, one of the most scorching episodes of this podcast we've ever done was about endometriosis and I confess freely I did not know about the agony of it until that day it's a couple of years ago I think Um, so so my heart goes out to anybody I was afraid I was I was going to be sacked from my job because I'd be out sick I was afraid I wouldn't have a roof over my head and so I decided because I worked in the libraries and I mean I was a joyful kind of a person and I couldn't understand if this was all in my head why could I not imagine myself better Um, it was the mental torment of it as well um, which was very hard and at one stage I just thought I can't do this anymore and I I used to rob my aunt's Valium and I had a little stash of Valium and I said if I I will take these if I need to and I lend this it was that bad and having the comfort of those Valium of knowing they were there kind of got me through and um, but when I look back on it now you see this is this is where the spiritual stuff will come in if I hadn't have had endometriosis I would never have written I'd never I would have been out gadding around having a great life really thoroughly enjoying myself um, travelling and doing everything you know um, but, but I that's could, what you would have done I yeah you would have stayed but in, I couldn't have done those things because I couldn't do that because I was so sick um, I would come home from work and but get into bed. But in this sickness, Patricia, you still had to use your brain and say, what is my alternative here? What can I do? So you saw a, a, a pattern before your eyes in the library. Well, I just thought uh, Mills and Boons were so immensely popular. And I mean, I I loved Mills and Boons myself. You would see people taking out literary books and an armful of Mills and Boons. I never judge people on what they read. Read what you enjoy. And just because you read Mills and Boon doesn't mean you can't read literary novels and um, I said oh maybe I'll write a Mills and Boone because there was a lady called I can still remember her name to this day her name was Charlotte Lamb and uh, she was living in tax exile in the Isle of Man and I said this was the real woman yeah that was a real who was name. writing Mills and Boone yes. and I said yeah that, that, I could do that I could write a Mills and Boone and I live in tax exile I'd be safe I'll be secure. That was all I wanted, safety and security. And um, so I wrote my first Mills and Boone, Surgeon's Conquest. And he was gorgeous. It was after Holiday in Rhodes. His name was Nikos Kyranos. Oh, he had lovely. broad, yeah, he was. He was a surgeon and he had broad shoulders and a hairy chest. Oh. And a firm jawline. Come here, you little fool. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I had Mills but and Boone in my time. Fortunately <laughs> for me, I couldn't stick to the genre. You <laughs> didn't, didn't quite go Do, with no, it. No, and I was doing his, uh, doing it from his, uh, writing from his view as well. And that wasn't what was meant to be. But anyway, but what happened was that I thought, oh, gosh, I really like doing this. You know, you're creating the power of it. You can do what you like with a character. Um, you have the power of life and now death. That was that, that was that was that was that rejected. It, now it went to a high editorial meeting and um, because I remember I was living at home at the time when it came, and, and my dad opened the door and the postman had a parcel. He said, it's from Mills and Boone. And he was very excited for me. And I knew that it was the manuscript coming back. Yes, yes. But what that did for me was to open my eyes to the joy of writing. 
um, oh gosh, this is, you know, I said, I'm never doing that again. I said, oh, the, I was so disappointed. I was gutted and never doing that again. And then um, my twin had brought me a little portable typewriter, uh, um, a silver reed. It was, remember the typewriter ribbons that were red and black? I do. Yeah, and that's what I, I, I wrote Lovely the little things. on. Yeah, so then I just put it away and said, I'm never doing this again. And I was walking through Easton's one day and I saw a silver reed typewriter and I just got this longing to touch the keys and I said, I'll try another one. So Maeve, of course, Maeve's Maeve advice, yeah, yes. write what you know. And I said, I'm going to write about modern Irish women because, you know, where is modern and as exciting and, and as glamorous and uh, as go-getting as, as uh, women from and London and L.A.? Well, it was the, I would have written it at the, in the late 80s. Yes. It was published in 1990. Yes. And, um, and of course, like I was working in Ballymore, I just wrote about Irish women. And, I mean, Caroline had... Um, was desperate to get away from home looking after her brothers and her father after her mother died because she was a, a drudge and um, she met Colin and not knowing he was gay and he was trying to kind of be normal in quotes and you know how far have we come in Ireland but this was the time when, when you had to get married to be seen to be quote normal and um and you hear it, Joe Duffy now, days on end, a few weeks yeah, ago, I don't know if you heard, about women who had married men yes, who, yes. who either had discovered they were gay or yes. were gay all along. Yeah. So you were way yeah. ahead of yourself. Way ahead of myself. And, so and that, they, was, that was City Girl. And they, it just resonated. Yeah. And it took off. Yeah. And um, here I am today. Well, then you gave up your job to write book three. I, so was, yeah. was, was that so that went to number one? Was that enough to that live on? No, Just tell us a little no. bit about about the glory of I, suddenly realizing no. you could actually live your life. No, I didn't. You. No, I didn't make enough money to. Um, my what I did was I took job sharing for a year, and then I said, "No, I can't. I have to." They, like they wanted a book a year because the books were f- flying out. Yeah. You know, I mean, it was a hugely popular success. Uh, and the subsequent ones as well and I just realised I can't do this Um, I can't do a day job where I'm working two late nights a week every second Saturday and focus and give my best to my writing so I had to take a leap of faith so I took and I had a mortgage a house with a mortgage Well actually one of the things that that, that, that I've read is that um, you were very brave and you took the decision but your publishers worked out a monthly payment plan so you could pay the mortgage Yes which was incredibly practical Yes that was the instead of getting the advance uh, in 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 a lump sum and it wasn't a huge amount either, you know, uh, but it was enough. To, once I could pay my mortgage, mm. I didn't care because I remember when I was paying my mortgage and when I was working in the libraries, I used to buy a bag of coal. I got paid by the fortnight. I used to buy a bag of coal on Thursday and a bale of briquettes. And the the little apartment I lived in was heated by a back boiler and uh, you lit the fire and the boiler heated the radiators. And if I came in from work at half nine, the place would be freezing, you know. And um, if you lit the fire, the place wouldn't be warm until midnight. So I that had to last me. The bag of coal and the briquettes lasted me for until the following Thursday. But you didn't have one so of those I would be you, skimping. You didn't have one of those meters that you put money into and then if you had no money to put into it, your electricity went off. No, do no. Do you know about those? No, I do. I do, I do, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, because I don't think people nowadays realise... They, they have no conception <laughs> the yeah. of, of life back But you know then. something, Cathy? I remember buying my first washing machine with apartment 3B and my sister and her husband were living at me 
and we used to uh, wash our jeans in the bath. And yeah, and I remember, I mean, this was 92, 93, maybe. I remember the, th- the three of us standing, looking at the washing machine, spinning, uh, knowing that, you know, we would be hanging out kind of nearly dry clothes out on the line. Mm. Young people today, they, they just wouldn't know how to exist without all their mod cons. Like our parents, do you remember? They saved for what they got, like, you know. They did. I suppose there are different challenges for every generation. Oh, yeah. I, mean, I remember we used to sort of snark at my father. I think he used to say his father walked to school in his bare feet. And we used to oh. say, yeah, yeah, bare feet. And their yeah, great grandfather yeah, yeah. probably had no feet and yeah, so yeah. on. And yeah. we all thought that was such a laugh. So I think we tend to do this to the generation. Yes, yeah. Um, well, I would hate below. to be this generation, to be honest. It is. It's you? difficult. Yeah. Now, Patricia, tell us a little bit, because obviously that was a huge cultural change for you moving from the library to working from home. Yes. Which has suddenly become the hot button topic of, our, of, of this yes, week. Yes, I know. And I'm yes. just thinking, you know, for lots of people who'll be working from home, this is going to be such a treat. Um, they can get up when they want. They can time themselves to sit at their computers when they want. That That's the great thing about it. But, you know, when, when I left the libraries, when I signed out at um, half five or half nine, whatever it was, um, I was gone. And then when I signed out at my weekend, I was gone. I didn't think of work from that moment on. Uh, when you're working from home, you can't escape it. Uh, you can't escape knowing that your office is in a state and you need to go and do a tidy up. Uh, you can't escape knowing that the dishwasher needs to be emptied or um, your fridge is manky. Um, yeah. uh, things All of them inviting you to come A and lot of things that will actually kind of put off the moment of writing. I hate starting to write. Once I'm once I'm in it and in the flow, you won't stop me. Um, but Patricia, what I'm hearing from you is, I think one of the most dangerous things of all about working from home, and a lot of people are guilty of it. There's, you have no cut off point. No, no, it's there. Now what? Uh, so one, your home is your workplace, yes, and there's no separation. Yes, and that's it's twenty four seven. And because unfortunately, when you're writing a novel, your character's in your head all the time. There is no escape. So, you know, my book tour was a great escape and now <laughs> now it's, everything's going into lockdown. Being in our little studio is a great escape. Yeah, I'm so delighted is. to hear. <laughs> yeah. Let's finish by talking about the Open Door Project, oh, right. which I know I'd is very to. close to yeah. your heart. Um, well, when I worked in the libraries, I was very aware that there was a kind of an awful lack of material for people, uh, the emergent reader, uh, people who had gone back to, to learn how to um, read. And uh, I remember one man, a middle-aged man, saying how embarrassed he was reading Tom and Mary go to school. And I, like there was very well-meaning stuff, like they were stapled together. They didn't look like books or, you know, they were very poorly produced. And I just thought, you know, the stigma is bad. You know, so many, I met so many inspiring people um, who slipped through the crevices because of maybe dyslexia, um, you know, bad teaching. Um, and highly intelligent people. And I mean, some relatives of my, my own have dyslexia, you know, and my great, my nephew, he's just got a, a first and a first honours degree in nautical science, uh, you know, but he has dyslexia and he's had to work hard. Um, so I was aware that people were being stigmatised with Tom and Mary go to school. And I just thought to myself... I was talking to one of the um, tutors and she said, you should write a book. And I said, oh, all right, then I will. 
And but it was the most challenging book that I ever wrote because and what's interesting is you did it while you were writing your your yeah. bread and butter stuff. Yes. Yes. Um you had to pare everything down, short sentences, accessible uh, vocabulary, words that don't look awkward on the page, but you're writing for adults. So you have to keep it a page turner and um, interesting. And what I always remembered was that, uh, imagine this is the first book that a Somebody who picks this book up, it'll be the first book they've ever read. What an honour that is for an, uh, an author. And so then that was great. Second Chance it was published. And I remember we launched it in Finglas Library. And I was saying to um, the VEC had contributed towards it and the publishers were there. And I think that wouldn't it be great. Tragically, not everyone is a Patricia Scanlon fan. Wouldn't it be great if we got a um, selection of authors and we did some novellas? I thought it was a brilliant idea and everybody thought it was a brilliant idea. Two years down the line, nobody had done anything. I just said to myself, oh, you may do it yourself. So I went, I sent a letter to Edwin Hegel in New Ireland. And Edwin is great. He's a great social conscience. Um, there's no money uh, for, for a publisher in the lit writing. You know, we didn't know what was going to happen with him. But he just took it. And it was Kira Constantine at the time was the editor in New Ireland. And she came up with the name Open Door. And it was so exhilarating. And um, now, Patricia... You're 40 books later. 40 books later. With people like yourself, obviously. Deirdre Purcell, yeah. Marion Keyes, Roddy Cathy Doyle, Kelly. Yeah. John Roddy Connolly. Doyle. John Connolly used to avoid me at parties <laughs> or at uh, uh, functions because he knew I was coming for him. So he told me after he'd written his <laughs> literacy book that now he can go out and feel safe. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, it's actually an astonishing project. Well, we're and congratulations Nala on that Nala will be um, 40 years. Uh, it's their anniversary. Uh, in September and we're doing um, is it 25 or 40? I can't remember. Um, we're doing an anthology of short stories so we'll have a big hoolie about that. Patricia anything for a hoolie, Cathy. Anything for a hoolie yeah. and I hope they continue for all of us, <laughs> Patricia. Listen, it was so kind of you to come in. Oh, uh, my really great do appreciate pleasure. it. Thanks for having um, us. And the very best of luck with Bridget. Um, and she's doing really well I think people are I, all I've got is praise um, which is lovely from people who've read it in a day and a half well, two I, days so I'm delighted with that 512 pages I want to tell you so if you're on lockdown or self-isolation or any of those things it is the ideal companion <laughs> and we'll keep you going for a while Patricia Scanlon thank you so much it was a real pleasure and the very best of luck with everything you do thanks Cathy and that's it for today thanks to our guest Patricia Scanlon we really do want to feel that we're in solidarity with you. And if you want to tell us anything, uh, whether you want to join in our pandemic poetry competition, <laughs> I definitely find a prize for that. Uh, you can email us on the women's podcast at irishtimes.com. You can also find us on Twitter at IT Women's Podcast. And that's the same address for Facebook at IT Women's Podcast. Um, so do get in touch with us and keep letting us know how you're getting on. We will keep giving you two episodes a week and uh, letting you know how things are in this new strange world. We hope you're all keeping safe and minding each other. The Women's Podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, and by Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. Until next time, mind yourselves and thanks for listening.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 